We've been in this series called Voices, where we've had people from within our church uh, sharing about what God is doing in their life, things that God's showing them and, and breaking down the word for us. And every summer we do this, and it's honestly, I sit back and I'm amazed at what God is doing in the lives of people in our church. Um, I want you to look around for a second and look at the people here. I mean, normally summer church attendance is low, and this summer it's just been crazy here. And I just want to thank you guys for um, being patient and understanding and the fact that uh, we know parking stinks and you're willing to, uh, to sacrifice that. And we also know this facility isn't totally the, the best setup ever. My, my voice in the back, you're seeing my lips move, but then uh, uh, the, the words follow about three seconds later. And so it's, it's not totally awesome in here, but we love what Jesus is doing and we don't think that uh, a building and parking um, should be things that confine us from God's moving on this earth. Amen. Um, and so uh, th this week we have another special guest with us. Uh, his name is Taylor Brandle. If you guys would give him a hand as he comes up. Um, so for those of you that don't know, Taylor is Angela Gifford's brother, older brother, right? I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Taylor's Angela's brother. Now, I have to tell you guys before he even gets going, this one, I don't know if this is embarrassing or not. This guy Probably. has the most amazing Lego collection that you've ever seen. No, I, I'm, not, I'm not lying. Take pride. Uh, about a month ago, he invited my boys and I over to his house to build Legos. And I'm thinking, like, you know, he's got a handful of sets. He had this closet full of amazing sets of Legos and told my kids, just go grab a box and build it. And this guy, like, builds them and takes them apart and builds them and takes them apart. And my kids had the most amazing time. Literally the next morning, they were like, when can we go to Taylor's house again? <laughs> it was like the Lego store in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. So um, if you like Legos, uh, you can get a hold of Taylor afterwards. He, he would love to have you at his house, as many of you that want to show up. And he's got enough sets for all of you to build, right? I, that's true. Amen. That's absolutely right. true. Sweet. Thank you, Taylor. Yeah, thank you. Good morning, Anthem. Okay, so that's a decent reaction, but I'm going to start off real quick by just kind of leveling with you. You know, every week Chris is up here, and at some point he asks a question. He's like, hey, who feels this way? And there's like three woos, and I'm going to be real with the anthem. Like, Chris is probably getting real tired of making the same joke every single week about like, why is it so quiet? But our head pastor can't just beg for audience participation. It's beneath him, but I don't work here. <laughs> It's not beneath me, all right? I, I'm going to ask you guys to participate a little bit today. Nothing heavy. You don't have to come up here and kick some stuff. Um, so if you guys could maybe practice a little bit for Chris in future weeks too and just get involved, I'd really appreciate it. And I think Chris would too. Can you guys do that for me? Hey! Yeah, there it is. All right. So first thing you got to know if you know about me, the Legos was a nice preface but it's actually passion number two for me. Those that know me well, what's passion number one? It's sports. Like most of you that know me are like, wow, we have to get them to preach to not wear sports gear. You're wrong. This pattern is Boise State logos. Go Broncos. <laughs> okay? I love college football more than just about anything in the world. And there's a reason I love that above all other sports. It's because it's where you can watch the ultimate underdog take their spot. It's routine on Saturdays, like you can occasionally sit down and watch a 40-point underdog just go ahead and take down a team that they don't belong in the same building with, and I live for watching that moment. 
There's underdogs in the Bible too, and that's what I always preach out of. Um, I really like to work with the, uh, the underdogs that are in the script, and there's a large chunk of the Bible that's an underdog. You can find it rocking down on the streets with a dime bag. It's the OT, Original Testament, baby. <laughs> okay? We really like the New Testament in our culture. It makes a lot of sense. It's written by Greeks, and that's where we take most of our cultural influence from. But that's not where the Old Testament comes from. I got a study Bible here, 1,516 pages of underdog. I can't do all that today. We're going to stick to two. Um, any readers in the room? Like, oh, let me stop, preface that. I bet you all can read. <laughs> if you've given the choice between like going to a movie and going and sitting down and reading a book, who chooses reading? There you go. A couple of you. Weirdos. That's okay. That's where the Old Testament works. The Old Testament isn't written the way that we read Scripture here in the United States naturally. We read it from this very Western perspective. Tell me what you're saying. Write it out like a philosophy book so I can take it and apply it. The Old Testament is not for people that learn by hearing it. They learn by experiencing it. You've got to get into the story. You've got to read it. You've got to feel it. And then you have to chase down the message it's trying to tell you. So what I'm going to do today is we're going to break down a passage that a lot of you probably don't know what to do with, and I'm going to try and create some, some actual take-home out of it. How's that sound? Good? Perfect. So I call it an original testament for a reason. That's not just a throwaway joke. It's a bad joke, but it's not a throwaway joke, okay? The reason I do that is we call this New and Old Testament. It's so easy to get into this mindset of it's, it's that thing we used to preface Jesus, and now that, we, now that it's here, we, the, none of that all that really applies anymore, and that's not true. It's the first testament. It tells us the same story. Our God is never changing. It was same in the time of Moses as it is today. Amen? Amen. Amen. So with that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 21. I'm going to do a little backdrop on what we're looking at in this passage. We're going to be looking at the story of Abram. Most of you probably know him as Abraham. It's not who he is quite yet. He hasn't earned the new change. He's got to level up in the future. Abraham's a patriarch, and that doesn't mean the same thing in his society as we look at it today. Historically, we tend, or not historically, but currently, we use that word usually if there's some sort of like masculine oppression, right? It usually means a negative thing in our company, or company, country. I'm excited, guys. I'm rushing through my words. I'm slurring. That's not what it means then. It's like a protector. It's a head of the household. And we live in a time where the earth is not as sparsely populated as it is now. That person, almost think of him like as a, a president of Dalton Gardens. He's got power, and his goal is to just take care of the people of that area. That's what he's doing. He's a provider. And Abraham has been raised probably since the moment he was born, born first in his family, to be the patriarch that leads his people into the future. And back in Genesis 12, God calls him away from that. He says, I want you to go from your country and from your people and your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And he goes. He takes his wife, and he takes his nephew Lot with him, and he splits, and he just wanders where God points him. This is really important that we know that he took Lot with him. Um, a lot of us think, oh, he's got a special relationship with his nephew. It's not quite that. Again, he's a patriarch. His mission in life is to populate a large family and to care for it. 
He, his wife cannot produce him an heir. He has to take Lot with him. That's how he passes his family name down. He's going to go down through Lot. And Abraham and Lot have a falling out not too long after they leave. They need to split ways. Their households actually grow and get too big individually. And so they fight kind of over who's going to take what land. And Abraham says, you pick. You take the better land. And he lays down the priority he should actually have the right to. And he lets Lot go where he wants. And as soon as Lot leaves, a king comes with some army, raids the cities in, runs off with Lot, and t- takes him and all of his family with him. And Abraham decides to solve that problem. He takes off with a family of 318 men to go to war with an army of four kings that's actually strong enough that it just beat an army of five kings, and he wins. That's not really feasible, right? How does that happen? You can't picture how that war takes place in a modern perspective. So that's where we're sitting when we pick up this passage right here. Abraham has just won won the war, and he's got to be feeling really great. God promised them a nation. And we look at our Bible today and we look at all these covenants and we've got a list of them. Abram doesn't have that. There's only one guy that beat him to the punch when it comes to that covenant and that's Noah. And God only had like seven choices when he picked Noah for it. So Abram's got to feel pretty special in comparison, right? He stands out above everybody. He just beat an army that there's no reasonable way to think that he, can, he could beat without the blessing of God. He has a very reasonable case to say, I'm the greatest man that ever lived, and I can do whatever I want. And he's sitting really pretty. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 14, 21, because most importantly to Abram, he just got his heir back. He got Lot, he's brought his family back, his patriarchy is restored. And in verse 21, it says, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. His emotions probably changed a lot with that last verse, right? He could care less about the things. He just wants his people. And now he's had to leave his family once, and then he had to let Lot go the second time, and now for a third time, he's being asked to give up the only thing that's ever really mattered to him. And you see him kind of start to break a little. He's not so happy. Um, And this reminds me, I just bought a house a couple of months back. When I bought this house, we went and looked at it, and there was one big thing above all else that stuck out, stood out that was not okay with this house, and that was the piano in the basement. Anyone ever had to move a piano before? It's the worst, right? <laughs> so it's in the basement, and I actually have some baggage in my past that involved pianos in my houses. The last house I had, I got saddled with two of them I didn't want. And it took me a while to figure out what to do with them, and they're actually still stuck in my sister's house. She wanted them. My brother-in-law is my realtor, so he's like, no, you are not leaving that piano behind because he knows once I deal with it, he's getting it. (laughs) And neither of us want that. And we get to like three days before closing and the piano is still in that house. And we had to go back and say, look, we're insistent. This thing does not stay behind. It turns out this piano was crucial to the people that lived there before. They were both in assisted living. They knew they couldn't take it with them. But I guess it was really important to their family. Like they needed that piano there. They put that piano in the basement before they built the walls. It didn't fit up the stairs. (laughs) I still don't want the piano, okay? I didn't know any of this when I just said, get it out. And it turns out that the kids of the owners who are also in their 70s had to take a chainsaw to this thing and move it out one piece at a time. 
This piano was like the whole world for these people. They didn't care that they were losing their home. They didn't care about the backbreaking manual labor for their kids. What was important to them is that the piano was there. You guys have to keep this story because they even made me promise, like, my parents can never know what happened to this piano. <laughs> when we got down to the room after it was gone, we found that there was a oh, three by six inch square with no carpet. They carpeted around the piano. <laughs> Lot is Abram's piano, <laughs> okay? That's what I need you to know. He says, I'm trusting you. I'm moving on with my life, but I got to hold on to this one thing. I need it. I want you to keep that, in, that example in mind as we progress through the story, because it's going to kind of put us in there, right? Now, we see Abraham starting to break down a little bit. So here's how he responds. Abram said to the king of Sodom with a raised hand, I've sworn an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. To Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre, let them have their share. And here's what's interesting about that passage and that vow he tells you about. Since when he beat that uh, king and, and won the war, and when the king asks for his stuff back, there's four verses. You can do the back research if you want. That vow ain't in there. It's not in our text. Did it happen? Maybe, but the author didn't think it was important to let us know about it. What's also interesting is when he says, I've made a vow to the Lord, he doesn't actually tell you who is going to be credited with building up his nation. He just says, it won't be you, king of Sodom. Is it Abram or is it God? He seems pretty ticked right now. What I really hear Abram saying to our king of Sodom is, there's not one, but there's two kings who I'm done waiting on help for. And we see Abram kind of step out of the character that we've always heard about, right? He's the father of faith. We tend to overlook the weak steps in his past, and that's one we've got right now. I want you to take a moment, let's put ourselves into the story. So just think about that. Like, when a moment where you, when you've, you're just fed up, like you're not freaking out, it's not a temper tantrum, there's no high holes in the drywall, but you're going to that pose that you need when you hold your anger in. Everyone got one of those? Here's mine. I roll my shoulders back, I roll my head back, I extend all my fingers and I kind of shake my arms, my anger pose, okay? So you guys probably have something similar. I think Abram's doing his anger pose right now. And then we're going to jump into chapter 15, and God recognizes that, and here's what he says. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. God immediately addresses Abram to reassure him. He sees that crack and he steps into his world to offer him that reassurance. But who's Abram frustrated with right now? Is it the king of Sodom or is it God? I think it's God. So he was holding it in okay. And then God jumps in and just like, nah, dude, you're good. How do you think Abram is doing right now? Like, is he still in his anger pose or is he looking for the drywall, right? I think he's looking for the drywall. Let's read 15 too and see how he reacts. 
But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my state, estate is Eleazar of Damascus. Eleazar of Damascus, probably a good dude. Abram doesn't really think he's worth passing his heir down to. I think he's probably like a sommelier. He's the guy that brings Abram's wine cup. But knowing a good flavor of a red doesn't necessarily qualify you to be president of Abram's family or however you want to look at the patriarchy. He lashes out. He says, God, you've made promises. Are you planning to fulfill them? Because I've been wandering around waiting on that, and I haven't seen it yet. This kind of reminds me, actually, just last week, um, we had Leah up here, and she was talking about when she got to Burundi how frustrated she was, and she just asked God every day to take her home to get her out of this mess. And I think that's where Abram is right now. I think he still has a faith in the Lord, but he doesn't want to follow his path anymore. He's asking for a different one. And if you see, Abram said, in verse 13, here's how he reacts. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And what's really important that I want you to see in verse 3 is when you see back-to-back verses, they start with Abram said, and then right after that we go to Abram said again. This is not the author forgetting who he told you was talking in the last verse. He's recording two conversations with no one else speaking in between. Abram states his case once. He doesn't hear from God. He's not happy. He doesn't wait for God's response. He speaks it again. This is something that you'll see in the Old Testament. This is an explicit narrative of Abram expressing his frustration. Instead of holding his hands out, he's probably got his fist to the sky. Abram's fired up. And in 15.4, God responds again. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Actually, let's jump into verse 5 too. He took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. And this reminds me of a time where I have run into this path where God is, it's really important to realize here that uh, God is giving him a reminder of, yeah, I made you that promise, but did you actually put all your trust in it yet? Like he's still clinging to Lot or that piano, whatever example works better for you. And I've got a story about this in my past too. It was about three years ago, um, I felt God was calling me out of the job that I was in. I'd been working at some company, just setting up utility accounts for corporations, helping them save business, negotiating deposits, cutting costs back, things like that. It was good work. The employee treated me well. I was paid an adequate job. Um, Nothing wrong with it. But I had a heart to really help people. I didn't know if that meant ministry, if it meant going for like a nonprofit, charity, government job, something like that. But I knew I needed to take a step of faith. I said, all right, God, you, find, you provide the job, I'll move on from here. And God said, no, you move on from here, I'll provide the job. So that's what I did, I quit my job. No backup plan, moved in with my parents, sold my house, had a little bit of savings to live off of while I hunted for work. And I did, I looked for work pretty diligently for about three months. And then I was looking down the road and I saw in one month that savings runs out. So I called my buddy who works at a pizza place, said, hey, you need some help? I, I, need, I need work. I haven't found a job. He said, sure. So I jump in, 
and four months later, I'm still working full-time at the pizza place. I'm so deflated. I'm so beat up over the fact that I didn't find the job I thought I was called to. I don't even have the heart to apply for new jobs after work anymore. I'm making less pay. I'm still living with mom and dad. I'm in the pits. And I go to God, and I'm just mourning, and I'm on my knees. Like, God, why am I here? Like, this was my job in high school. Like, I know you have something more for me. Why am I still here? And God says, well, you haven't trusted me yet. When the savings got tight, my trust ran out. That was my piano. And so I went into work the next day, and I gave my two weeks, and I had no idea what I was going to do next. The savings were empty at this point. I'm working out. I got about three days left at the pizza place, and I get a call for someone who wants to bring me in for an interview for a job. I've spent long hours trying to think about when I applied for it, and I can tell you guys I'm pretty confident that I never did. It was the state of Idaho, and they wanted to bring me in for an interview. And you remember when you apply for a state job, it's like, hey, write us three columns about how you can prove you've got the experience that you need. You don't just apply and forget about it. I went in for my first interview, and I had no idea what the job was, just that they were interested in talking to me. <laughs> I talked to three ladies for 20 minutes, and they said, yeah, it seems like you're a good fit. Well, can you come back in a week for a second interview with our boss? I said, sure. And the first interview, the first question I got on that second interview was from the hiring manager who said, you know, they tell me you've got great qualifications for this job, but people come in with false expectations all the time. Can you tell me what, what you're expecting from this? <laughs> I gave the most honest answer I knew how. I said, you know... You probably get people giving you the wrong answer to that all the time, so rather than make a fool of myself, why don't you tell me what I should expect? <laughs> I've been working for the state of Idaho for two and a half years, and I've never been happier. I had to trust God, and he came through. Right? Thank you. Good story, right? It's a good story. Abram's facing that moment here. He's working at the pizza place, he's on his knees, and he wants to figure out what's next. And God's approaching him with like, what? What? You think that's the plan? I'm going to pass down this heir and this whole family I've promised you through Lot? You let him free, move to Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, that place is so evil. In like five chapters, we're going to see God just burn it. Just like, get out of here. And it's so bad that when they're leaving town... Lot's wife looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. Like you can't look at it without becoming the personification of the Dead Sea. Right? How bad is that? Side note, what do you guys think happened? Like future generations, you know, that farmers and shepherds are still passing through the land. Like someone just built like a salt statue out here. Let's, we're like 100 miles from town. <laughs> And then, like, the cow, the cow won't stop licking it, right? Like, he's pushing him. He's pu come on, Bessie, Bessie, Joseph, you too. Come on, come on. All right, all right. Bessie, you're back. <laughs> Side note. But God took his word, um, took his word on a promise just a few obstacles later. It became really clear then that he had not let go of his backup plan. God's letting him know that he has not forgotten him. So, 
in verse 6, it just states, Abraham believed the Lord. He believes this promise, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Does this sound familiar? This sounds more like the New Testament narrative we're used to hearing, right? Romans 4, 3 through 5. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed in God and was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who does not work, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Original Testament, not outdated. And in 7 through 8, God moves on to say, or excuse me, Abram moves on. It is God, my bad. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? What's really important to see in these verses here is God doesn't just suddenly make Abram a new promise. Abram didn't barter with him, open God's eyes and help him see. No, 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 I need something else. He doesn't give him a new promise. He doesn't give him a better promise. He tells Abram, I already made it. Listen. He sticks and restates the promise he'd already made. One thing I started off by is saying, what's the relevance we find in the Old Testament? Our God is never changing, and that's true right here. He has to give Abram a reminder that three chapters after he makes it the first time. This isn't new. Abram acknowledges here that he has faith, but that he wants certainty to keep it in mind. In uh, verse 8, he asks, how can I know that I'll gain possession of it? He's telling you, I trust you but I need help because I know my faith's going to waver again in the future. Please help me keep it in mind. Um, he's admitting that he's not good enough. He doesn't have what it takes to keep this trust in place as he moves forward. An example of this, so this is how I can define like who's my generation and who's just a little bit younger, like how old you are. So, most of us probably know who Toby Mac is, right? Christian musician. Who knows Toby Mac as like the solo artist, the, I don't know, rap, pop singer, whatever? Raise your hand if that's how you think of Toby Mac. Okay, good chunk of you. Who remembers Toby Mac as the guy that killed DC Talk? <laughs> hey, man, my people. <laughs> so for those of you that don't know the back reference, he's big now, but back in the day, he was part of a group called DC Talk. It was like them and the Newsboys in the 90s. Who was going to be the big rock band in Christian music? And in 2001, DC Talk took a break. They put out solo albums where each of the three band members made their own songs. And it turns out Toby Mac was really good at it, and he just kind of kept doing that. And the other two guys, one was Michael Tate. He was a really talented singer, but he didn't really do anything special in creating his own music. He stuck around. He had some songs. And now he actually switched sides. He sings for the Newsboys. So I guess he won either way. But everyone forgets about the third guy. Anyone know his name? Hey, hey, Kevin Max, right? Dude, I can't tell you a song that dude has ever recorded. Like, they're not good. <laughs> when I was doing some research on this to see what he's up to today, I found out he's actually still making music. That was a surprise to me because the last song I heard from him was on that solo album in 2001. 
He's still trying, but he's not going anywhere. And you're going to notice a theme here. You guys, okay, I know the age group here. We all watch The Office, right? The accounting team, it works really great as a whole, but if Kevin's doing it on his own, like that dude struggles with basic arithmetic. He needs his teammates. Kevin Durant, NBA All-Star. That dude is fantastic. He's a great player. He can't win a championship by himself. He had to go to my beloved Golden State Warriors and cheat his way to it, right? There's a theme here. I actually cut this joke out, but uh, then last week Rachel came up and talked about how she had that mask and she named it Kevin. I'm like, oh, I got to put the Kevin jokes back in. (laughs) Kevin Owens, former WWE champion, like classic bad guy, can't win it on his own, cheats every single time. God makes Kevins. Like, and I'm sorry if you're a Kevin, it's been a rough couple of weeks for you. You're good. There's just a rolling example here. Like the only Kevin that's ever in the history of the media I can remember that made it on his own was Kevin McAllister. And we don't want to be the sociopath child murderer from home alone. Okay. No one wants that. God makes Kevins. And that's okay because Abram is admitting right now, like I'm Kevin too. Like I can't do it by myself. I need your help, Lord. And All of us need to find the strength to be a Kevin. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I know. That was a long joke. I hope it paid off. And I have a really touching, actually, story from my own past where I kind of ran into this same thing. So it was about five years ago. I had hit a train wreck. Like, oh, my gosh. I hope I never have to live through any part of life like this again. I had had two goals my entire life. I I don't have huge lofty goals. I only wanted two things, simple life. I wanted to get married. I wanted to own my own home. That was it. Three weeks after my wife and I moved into our very first home, my boss called me into the office and said, we're closing the department. Go ahead and gather your things and get out. No notice. I haven't made my first mortgage payment yet. I'm unemployed. My wife and I separated five days later. I had gotten all I wanted. I built it on my own in my mind. And God reminded me like, no, it doesn't really work when you do it on your own. And I'd been, I'd been running from the Lord. I had not been active with my faith in about 10 years. I was just living life on my terms, doing what I wanted. And uh, when I separated, I had to, you know, pack a duffel bag, move in with mom and dad. Felt pretty low. Started going to church again. I remember I got home from church one Sunday and uh, I knew we weren't going to make it. Like, I just knew. Things were not going well. I'd been doing, going to the counseling sessions by myself, you know. And uh, I, I knew I needed God. Like, I knew I wasn't going to make it. I knew I could not do it on my own. I couldn't make it through this. And I was just had some worship music playing kind of softly. And I was closed my eyes, laid out on the couch, and just praying to the Lord, like asking him, like, I want to follow you. Show me how I can make it through this. Like, I need to know that you're going to be there. And I was kind of drifting in and out of sleep. And as I'm praying, I suddenly start to feel this warm embrace up and down my thigh. And uh, I thought my parents had got home from church, and it was my mom doing it. And if you know me and my mom, like, you probably know, even if that's what it was, normal Taylor's just like, yeah, it's gross. Get off me. (laughs) that's That's not the relationship we have. Um, the last time my mom resp- told me she loved me, I responded by saying, okay. <laughs> and, uh, 
And she didn't think that was very funny, but that's kind of how we are. Um, but in this moment, I was like, I need whatever you can bring me, like anything. And I just kind of, I let it go. I'm like, I just need that comfort. I just kept worshiping, kept praying, like as vulnerable as I've ever felt in my life. And five minutes later, I opened up my eyes and that room was empty. My parents didn't get home from church for another hour. God had me. Like when I knew I couldn't do it on my own. God had me, and he sent me that sign. And he's about to do the same thing for Abram here. Chapter 15, we're going to do a marathon here, verses 9 through 18. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions." You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Clear as mud, right? Like, we all know what's going on there, right? The animals, the torches, easy. Of course not, right? This is why we have to study the Old Testament. This is why it's hard. Um... The teaching I'm going to give here, I wouldn't feel right if I didn't credit. I've got a guy who's been kind of mentoring and teaching me a lot of the last few years. His name is Marty Solomon. Um, yeah. So uh, if you guys are interested in hearing more of the background on this, I just, I, I wouldn't feel right preaching on it without uh, sourcing him first. So uh, look that up. But what's happening here, if we want to break it down a little bit, the cutting up of the animals. Like, anyone have a clue what's going on there? Like, why is that where we jump? He's like, give me a sign. And God says, okay. And Abram's like, all right, slice and dice. All right, doesn't make much sense. This is what's called in their time a suzerain vassal covenant. Does that clear anything up for anyone? No, probably not. A suzerain or suzerain, if you pronounce it that way, it's like an empire. It's someone that goes out and they have all these puppet states or people that they rule over. And the vassal, that's a term we're a little more familiar with, I think. That's a vassal is like an independent nation. They're given their own independence, but they still have to feed up to the empire above. Um, what Israel was under Babylon being, after being conquered, that's a good example of that. What Hong Kong is in China today um, that would be kind of an example of that. It's a huge part of the ancient world in the Near East, China. More recently, the Ottoman Empire used that. And this is a suzerain vassal covenant that's being made. It's called a blood path. Anyone know what a blood path is? We just read about it. But of course, you don't know what it is because you, like we're not doing that gross. Here's what it does. A, a blood path is a common way of sealing a treaty between a suzerain and a vassal. 
It will also be used in marriage arrangements between the father of the bride and the groom of the bride. The, the father is committing to giving his support to the marriage, and the groom is giving his co covenant commitment to, I will take care of your bride, or of your daughter and my bride. That's what this is. It's a blood path. Here's how you seal this treaty. You dig a trench, you take a bunch of animals, you cut them in half, you let the blood run into the trench, you kick off your shoes, and barefoot, you walk through the blood. Pretty gruesome, right? And that covenant is saying to the other party, if I don't hold up to my end, this is what you can do to me. You are putting your life on the line and you are staking your commitment. I'm going to miss those shoes. Um, big problem for Abraham. He realizes what he needs to do. He digs the trench. He fills the blood. Vassal goes first. And that's when Abram realizes that he has gotten in over his head. You guys ever think you're a little bit bigger than you are and you get close to a situation and you realize, I've made a mistake, I've overcommitted? Who's been there? So here's my story. When I was in high school, a couple of friends of mine went out to the Creation Festival and that was still in the Gorge and George, if anyone remembers those days. And uh, we didn't want to pay for cold showers. So on like day three, we decided we're going to drive down the river, find a spot to just jump in and wash off. And we went to Tubbs Hill all the time. We liked cliff diving. So we said, let's just find a good spot to kind of jump in. Well, I don't jump well. Um, that's not new. It wasn't true 70 pounds ago. It's not true today. But we found a spot that looked good, like 50 feet up. That's probably not true, but that's the way I told the story for 15 years. So I don't know what the real footage is now, but we're going to go with 50 feet. And so we had one guy go down first and kind of swim around and make sure that there was enough depth to where we could jump off and get in the water. He says, you guys are good. Just make sure when you jump, you got to get probably 8 to 10 feet clearance away from the rock. Because there's a rock here about two feet underneath the water, and you're going to hit that if you can't clear it. <laughs> so I'm with four other dudes, and they're like, yeah, that's fine. I can make that jump. I'm like, you guys are crazy. No one can make that jump. I'll do it if you guys can do it. Well, they can all jump better than me. So one, two, three, four, they make the jump. This guy's up. And I didn't want to be remembered as the coward that made everyone else go first. So I had to create a different type of memory for them. High school me, not a role model, but here's what I do. I said, they're going to remember me as the crazy guy. So I said, I pulled off my trunks, and I was going to go skinny dipping. And by the way, to this day, that's all they remember. <laughs> but here's what I do. What do you do when you go cliff diving? You take one hand, you plug your nose so you don't get water on it, right? And the other one's just like, woo! Not for me. One plugs the nose, the other's got to be a shield, <laughs> right? So as I jump, I turn about 90 degrees while I'm in the air, and I clear that rock with everything but shield elbow. I got a softball growing here for like the next three months. I was in over my head, and uh, I wasn't smart enough to back down. I'm more of a lot than an Abram. Abram figures it out. After preparing for the ceremony, he realizes that he actually can't hold up to his end of the bargain. 
He says, oh no, like if I do this, it's my blood filling the trench. I can't do that. We see him, he's sitting there. The vultures are gathering. That does not happen quickly. They're in a desert. They're not like on the tree the next foot over, like waiting, like, is he going to cut that up? Let's wait and see. Like the blood's got to hit the wind. He's been there for a while. The sun is going down and he's realizing, I cannot do this. Like I cannot be that holy vessel. I cannot match God's holiness. I I am doomed if I walk through this path. And that moment where he realizes that he is not good enough and that he cannot hold up that end on his own, that is the last action we see Abram take in this story. That's it, father of faith. And what we see is he falls into his sleep and Abram comes and uh, God comes to Abram in a dream and he tells him, it's not just you that's going to struggle. Your descendants are going to struggle too. And they are also going to raise their fist to the sky and say, God, where are your promises now? We're going to see this through the generations, but I'm always going to have your back. And God takes action. As he so often does in the Old Testament, his um, presence is going to be signified here by fire. And he picks up a torch and he goes through the path twice. He goes first for Abram and he goes twice Uh, the second time, for himself. He takes Abram's account on him too. This should sound familiar to you. It's the story of our cross that we're all so familiar with. I really like this story because the marriage allegory really speaks powerfully to me. Like I mentioned, like when I, five years ago, I was laying on that couch and I I knew I wasn't going to make it and I was right. We, We didn't make it. And uh, in the 28 years of life I'd lived up to that point, I had never known divorce. My parents had never been divorced. I had four siblings that had never been divorced. There was divorce in my family before I was born, um, but aunts, uncles, grandparents, none of them. No divorce. It was me. I bore that black mark alone. It was my scarlet letter. And I was terribly ashamed. I let down myself. I let down my family. I let down my spouse. And I let down her family. And uh, the story is powerful for me knowing that my father-in-law had the right to stomp through my blood. Like, I've lived what it means to not be good enough in the way this covenant is speaking to. But just like Abram, I didn't know that I, I wasn't just a victim in this either. Like, I had been a man worth divorcing. I was flawed and I needed help. And at that low point, I had no idea what this, what this uh, story actually meant. But I was living exactly like Abram, staring at that trench, not knowing how to get out of the mess. And all I could do was sit and wait, and I was worried about how long is it going to be before God throws me in, puts on his waders, and stomps through the blood. And as I sat there waiting for it, the thing I never expected happened. God pulled me away, and he took off his shoes and said, I got you. I've messed up again over the last five years. I've made plenty of mistakes. I've deserved to have my blood fill those trenches again, and every time God has still been there running that torch through on my behalf. Some of you here today are believers. Some of you are probably committed. Some of you are probably struggling. Some don't even know. Some of you are probably true skeptics. A lot of you might have heard your whole life, if you are the skeptic at least, that 
Christianity is really about finding the right eggshells to walk on, to avoid a, a vengeful um, God that just seeks judgment. And I want you to know today that you've heard that wrong. This story is all about a God who knows what justice is and has been begging and waiting for you your whole life to let him take that judgment on himself instead. Sounds quite a bit better, doesn't it? If you've never met that God before, I hope today that you give yourself an opportunity to. If our worship team wants to come back up, probably now's a good time to get ready. If you are a believer today and you've been caught up so much in trying to live your life perfectly um, and, and placing kind of salvation on yourself, I want you to remember the story, the trench and the torch. And I want all of you to know, regardless of where you're at with your faith today, that you are still absolutely, exactly, beautifully the person that God wants to spend eternity with. But he also wants you to notice a few things about Abram's story. When Abram realized that this promise is true and that he needed to have more faith, he didn't ask God for mercy and he didn't ask God for more. He asked God, give me the trust that I need to put in you that you'll still fulfill what I already believe. He asked for strength to endure what was coming. God didn't seek Abram out because he needed the fiercest warrior who could take down four kings. He sought Abram out because he was a person who, after winning that army, gives everything back to the person that had just been robbed. He didn't ask for Abram or seek him out because he was a shrewd manager of his resources and could make the most of whatever he was given. He sought him out because when he was given a choice to give away the best of what he had to make peace, that he chose that. And he didn't choose Abram because he could fix any mistakes he made, but because he knew he needed to rely on God to get out of the mess himself. I want to challenge us all today to try to remember not just the blessing of Abram, but of his trust. Abram did not want to let his lot go, his piano go. And a lot of us have those pianos that we're carrying around today. He didn't seem especially concerned about anything he managed except the one thing. But not once, twice, not three times, he was told he had to let go of what the whole world around him was telling him was his only value and purpose. And three times he did it, and he said, God, ask me, give me the confidence to do it the fourth. None of this took precedence in his life over trusting God and to love people well because of that trust. Chris talks to us a lot up here about his vision to see every person in Kootenai County come to Christ. I'm not quite the eternal optimist Chris is. <laughs> um, but I can tell you that is an impossible goal if we look, act, love, and trust God the way that people are used to seeing the church look, love, and trust God. We can do something special here. Chris's goal is not out of reach. It is not impossible. But we have to make a choice to be more selfless and put our trust in God. It will not happen by accident, church. It's a choice that we have to make. We have to let our metaphorical lots and pianos go and choose to pursue God. I hope someday, when we all reach the end of our lives, that we can sit on our knees humbly before God and said, we did everything we can to make sure that trench in Kootenai County stayed empty. You guys pray with me today? I really just want to take a moment. I want to talk to two groups of people in this room. 
If there's anyone in this room that's never made that commitment to God, they've never put their trust in him, or, or some that maybe have and they've run off and they know they need to come back, um, if everyone keep their, their heads down and their eyes closed, if you just put your hand up so we could pray for you, um, we'd love to see that moment. And for those of you in the room that are believers and are realizing, oh gosh, I've rented the chainsaw with the piano still in the basement. God's called me to do things that are uncomfortable and I don't know how it's going to work out, but I have got to make that choice on my own. And you just, you need strength. You need that trust and you need to be able to put your faith in him to do that. Just slip a hand up so we can pray for you as well. Lord, I just want to pray for these two groups of people. Sacrifice isn't easy. That's why you had to model for it so many times and so vividly over and over again. Lord, we, there's a world around us that desperately needs your love. And we just ask that you would give us the trust that we need to find how we can show that to them. To just bring you into their worlds, Lord, and to lay down the things that you've called us to lay down in that pursuit of your kingdom, Lord, that we wouldn't say, show me how, and then I'll give up the what, but Lord, that when you tell us what, we will do it, and we can be patient and trust on you for the how, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Anthem.